My name is Dennis Sheeran. And this is Raymond Steinmetz. And we are from the Instant Relevance Podcast. We are proud members of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you are listening to right now. Make sure you check out all of the other great podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. And get ready, because the learning begins in three, two, one. Welcome to the Infused Classroom Podcast, where each episode, Tanya Abrith and Holly Clark take you behind the scenes with leaders in education, give you insights into what's happening in classrooms around the globe, and showcase online platforms that are disrupting education. Hello, and welcome to the Infused Classroom Podcast. I'm your co-host, Holly, from San Diego. And I'm Tanya from South Florida. As always, we're super excited to have one of our favorite people, David Hotler from Madrid, Spain, and we have a lot to talk about, but we're going to let David introduce himself, tell you what he does, and then we will jump in. My name is David Hotler. I'm originally from the States. I grew up in Ohio and I taught in Virginia, and now I am one of the luckiest people in the world. I get to work at the American School of Madrid. And my official title is a technology integration specialist, but really I like to tell people that I get to play with toys and teach kids kind of like a grandpa. I get to come in and I get to have a lot of fun and then I get to leave when the teacher has to do all of the important stuff. But really what I do is I spend a lot of my time integrating design and integrating technology into the classroom. So we utilize Uh, some cutting-edge technologies and some not-so-cutting-edge technologies to partner up with a lot of design thinking strategies that I've learned in the past few years and uh, tie it all together with the exact needs of a particular curriculum that a teacher has. So um, a lot of what I do is have meetings with teachers and I talk about what it is that they're working on and what it is that they want to accomplish with their students and their learning targets and the success criteria for the kids. And then we design these custom units that involve green screens and VR and design thinking and making apps. And it's just a lot of fun and the kids own it. And uh, yeah, I kind of co-teach a lot and I do a lot of planning and it's a lot of fun. Sounds like my dream job. It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. And it's all happening in Madrid, Spain. All right. The best city ever. And it sounds like you are actually the infused classroom. Like everything that you're talking about is exactly what we are trying to say. It's not just about technology. It's not just about these things. It's about taking learning first. And then that's your goal. And then seeing how we can amplify it with technology. So can you tell us a little bit more? You said something about design. Can you go into that a bit more? How are you using design in the classroom? Right now, I'm working with a sixth grade science teacher, and the students uh, are in the middle of a unit from the Next Generation Science Standards curriculum all about the human impact on climate change. And so the students, without me in the classroom, the students spent uh, a considerable amount of time looking at humans' impact on climate change, uh, and the teacher doing a little bit of pre-work narrowed it down for the kids and said, we're going to focus particularly on carbon production and humans' production of carbon into the atmosphere. And the kids then did some preliminary research and broke up the carbon emissions into six smaller categories. And so they said, well, we want to focus on stuff like food waste, deforestation, plastic 
Uh, we want to focus on factories. And, and, and so the kids went and they did research and, and they were like, oh man, did you guys know about, um, you know, how food production produces a bunch of carbon because of the animal waste and the byproducts and it's really hard to clean it up. And, and the deforestation is, is they're cutting down a lot of trees, which is taking away from the, the creation of carbon. So a lot of the surface level, um, just examining what's happening with our complex global economies and, and how humans impact on the world is really driven by a lot of money and a lot of consumption and that sort of thing. And the teacher and I sat down before the unit and we said, what do we really want the kids to come away with when we think about human impact on the climate? Um, and, you know, obviously we want them to come away more knowledgeable citizens, but a more holistic thing that we wanted to happen is we wanted the kids to come away saying reduction is the answer. Recycling is great, but it's not the answer. In 2016, China stopped buying 45% of the world's, or I don't want to get quoted, but exactly 45% of the world's plastic supply. And, and that had a huge trickle down effect. I, I was just looking at a website and there are small little towns in the United States that their recycling facilities used to just be like cleaning and packaging centers for plastic because China was buying it all. And recycling is just not a thing that's working anymore. And a lot of these cities and towns across the United States, they don't have really any kind of recycling program to handle recycling because they're not capable of processing and doing anything with it themselves because they were just selling it to China. Uh, and that's a huge, huge problem. So after their presentations and after they've given these presentations to the teacher, I came into the classroom and I sort of flipped the funnel. So in science, you have a problem in the middle um, and then you you go looking for the solutions everywhere else. So for example, to explain the phenomena of gravity, you start asking a ton of different questions that take you outside of where you're standing right now. So you say, well, what happens when we drop a ball outside in the hallway? What happens when we drop a ball from really high? What happens when we drop a ball from really low? What happens when we drop a ball on the moon, on the Mars, underwater, in a vacuum? And you collect all that data and it slowly starts to help you explain the phenomena of gravity. With design, you put a problem in the middle and then you go everywhere else and you pull from different places to help you solve that particular problem. So if you think in science, the phenomenon, the problem is in the middle and you sort of spider out looking for solutions. And then when you finally get to uh, a narrowed down thing that we want to try and solve, maybe from looking at science, you put that in the middle and then everything sort of converges upon that. And you start to say, well, we can utilize things like Velcro to keep things from floating away in space. And we know a lot from... Um, from our research on the human body and exercise and muscle development and bone density. And so we're going to pull that into the mix and we, we start to pull all these other things into the mix. And we start to realize that like, if we understand the phenomena of gravity, that's going to help us keep astronauts living longer in space. And so if my goal is to keep astronauts living longer in space, I have to go out and pull from all these other different realms and dimensions and, and inventions and discoveries to solve that one particular problem. Um, and so I came into the classroom and I said to the kids, let's discover what you're passionate about in these six categories. And then we're going to take these big problems and we're going to break them down into something really, really small. So we took 
the students through design thinking practices that helped them break the problem down in something that was small that they cared about, but also something that affected the people around them. And that was one of the big criteria because in human-centered design, you want to be able to speak to the people that you're helping. And that was a big, big part of it. Um, and then from there, we've just been working through the design thinking practices that I've learned uh, with my time at Future Design School as a local activator uh, and, and running their summer camps. And, and we kind of reapplied that to what we're doing in the science classroom and, and adapted it to fit there. And it's been really phenomenal. The kids are coming up with solutions on how to reduce food waste at their school and how to reduce plastic wrappers when you go. Uh, here in Spain, we have these things called um, chucharillas, and, and they're like the little stores where you can go in and buy candy. And it's like it's like Willy Wonka's factory. You just go in and buy candy by basically by the kilo, and you can pick out whatever you want. But they always give it to you in this little plastic bag. And one student is just really driven to help solve that problem. And, um, and so it's been really great because the whole time we've, we've consistently said, look, if you were able to solve this one little problem, you know that it connects to one of the bigger six problems. And you know that one of those bigger six problems connects to carbon. And you know that carbon connects to the human impact on climate change. And so that is really what good human-centered design and science, when you bring those two together, are all about taking the big, big problems and just chopping them up, breaking them down and bringing them into something that's personal, that affects you, that touches you and that, that you feel like you can accomplish and solve. And so we had this great moment last Friday, the girls, three girls that really want to reduce food waste, they want to incentivize fifth graders to waste less food by giving them points in their classroom for wasting less food. And so their idea was, well, we're going to measure the bags of empty or the, the bags of food that someone throws away. And, and I said, Oh, okay. So you're going to give up your lunches for a couple weeks to measure the bag. And they looked at me and they were like, wait, we actually have to do this. <laughs> and that was the moment they like struck them. They're like, wait, we're actually going to do the things that we're, we're planning to and, and, and implementing and talking to people about doing and writing all these complex ideas down on paper, we're actually going to do them. And I was like, yeah, that's, yeah, you're going to go and do the thing that we're talking about doing. And um, it was really powerful. They shifted their ideas and, and now they've partnered with a high schooler who understands how to utilize machine learning and, and artificial intelligence. And they're working to write an application that would allow you to just put your plate underneath a camera and it's, it would use machine learning and artificial intelligence to basically measure how much food waste is on your plate. Um, and it's great. He came in and he was able to talk to the kids and he was like, well, the first thing you'd want to do is put the plate under the camera and have the camera just identify things like what's the plate? What's my thumb? What's, uh, what's that yellow thing? Right. And so it would utilize the databases of photographs, like thousands and thousands of photographs to figure out what's on the plate. And then he would say, but then you have to, you, you want to be able to break that down even further and say like, is that a banana or is it a banana peel? Like what's the difference between a banana and a banana peel? And, and then also like, we'll need a little human interaction to say, well, a banana peel isn't food waste because you technically ate the banana. You did what you're supposed to do, but a full banana, that would be considered food waste. And like a chicken bone, that's food, not food waste, but a full piece of chicken, that's food, you know, so 
it's just a, it's been such a phenomenal thing to see them go from sort of this really like idealistic i'm going to we'll just eliminate food waste at our school and then you take them down to the cafeteria and you have them talk to three of the staff and you have them like actually look at the trash cans from a different perspective and they they really have come so far uh in their projects because they have to actually do it and they're actually trying to solve a particular audience's problem. And so um, they've had to talk to fifth graders and they've had to talk to the cafeteria staff and they've had to actually think about putting on gloves and weighing people's food waste uh, and, and saying like, no one wants that job and that's not a sustainable thing. And we don't have anyone at this school who's going to do it and I'm not going to give up my recess to do it. So can we leverage technology to do that? Um, who do we know that can do this? There's a high school that knows AI. Can we talk to him? Like all of those things that that I was able to that that th- thank you to all of the different gods on the planet that we have teachers like the one that I'm working with who said this is valuable. We're gonna we're gonna dig deep 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 into this thing, this designing of a of a solution because this is really where science where you see the value of scientific research as it applies to real world. This is, this is why it's so important to, to have these experiences because it's like, it allows you to like sniff out the BS in the world. When you start to see someone post something and they're like, well, this scientific thing says this, so I'm not going to do this particular thing. And you're like, yeah, but that's like, that's not sustainable. You don't even know what you're talking. Like, what research did you even look at? And so the kids are able to like dig into that. And I, you know, my, my job is fantastic. Cause I just sit up at the front. I'm like, why, why, why <laughs> tell me so more. David, you, you said something that I'm sure our listeners have already recognized, but when you said like the word do it, you're really saying transfer of knowledge. You're saying we're going to apply this to a real world, real world situation. And that is the thing that's missing in most schools is that there's not this time for the transfer of knowledge. There's a time to make meaning. We do a lot of making meaning, but we don't do the transfer. So that's amazing to hear. But you said something else that the teacher is a, said, this is important. And I, and I want to ask, did the teacher have to give up some other, we'll call them standards, um, in order to like say, you know what, this is important. They're into this. Let's dig in deeper. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't have the chance to talk to the to teacher about how much they think they're giving up in terms of something else. Um, this particular teacher is very keen on the idea that a lot of time is wasted in the classroom on processes and procedures that have no added value to learning. Um, and so she puts a lot of ownership on the kids and a lot of trust in the kids that yields for her a lot of other time. Um, and I did, a, I did a podcast on this years ago about uh, what happens in the lower school grades when you don't have like clear processes for things like transitions and clear processes for what happens when a student needs to go to the bathroom or wants to make a connection or talk about their learning. And this teacher has set up, and, and I mean, she's phenomenal, but she has clear processes for everything and, they, and she's set them up from day one. And so she has so much more time in her year because 
you know, it's like my grandfather. He took the change out of his pocket every single day and he put it in a jar. And like, if you just measured a week's worth of change, that's really insignificant. But over the course of a year, you're talking about a significant amount of money. And this teacher has essentially gained a significant amount of time because she's established these processes and put a lot of ownership on the kids, which, you know, yields other benefits as well about them being more responsible and things like that. But I'm sure she's given up more time and say the astronomy lesson. But um, we have a phenomenal, we have a phenomenal leader at our school, and we also follow the NGSS. And both of those things say that there are certain standards that you might call like a power standard, or um, I forget what they call them in the NGSS. But essentially, understanding the scientific method and understanding the different phases of the moon sort of should hold different weights, like knowing waning and waxing and like the phases of the moon probably aren't as important as like understanding the scientific method and how to apply that to multiple scenarios in your life. And so we have the type of principles going to say, okay, you didn't hit everything on this list, but what you did hit, you hit it so hard that that it's going to transfer just years and years into the future. And so I would say it's a, it's a, it's kind of a mix of a few things. Um, the next unit we're doing is astronomy and we're going to put the kids into some, some HTC vibes and they're going to do some, some room scale virtual reality. And like, I can tell you what, there's some applications in virtual reality that when you see space in this perspective, it's like two days of lecturing, trying to tell, trying to talk kids through it. And you put them in this thing and one, one minute later, they're like, I see it. I get it. It makes so much sense. Uh, It's incredible. That's so important. Because a lot of people, when I say that that I think uh, VR is going to really change education in this way, they're like, oh, it's one of those shiny tools or whatever. I'm like, no, you're not getting it. Like, it it it's can be. Sure, if I'm taking, you know, Google Cardboard and exploring the ocean and we're all going to the same spot in the ocean and I'm reading from the script, sure. But what you're talking about is... Well, and like, Holly, what you're saying is VR is just a piece of paper. Paper paper revolutionized education, but it wasn't just that someone invented paper. It was that someone invented Cornell notes and, and revolutionized uh, shorthand or, um, you know, invented new ways of, of Xeroxing and photocopying information and making things called books. So paper itself wasn't that incredible, but it's, it's the inventions and the things that people thought up to do with paper that revolutionized education. And so VR, I mean, the VR that we have now, it really isn't even that cutting edge, but it's what the people are doing and how they're using it that's changing. And, and you know, to go back to to this teacher and, and the way she's made time, so I t- I've talked to so many cynics in education that are like, yeah, yeah, you're just being idealistic. And But I, I really do want to harp on the fact that it is a mix of many different things. It's a mix of a leadership that's open-minded and saying that it's okay not to hit at all. And it's, and it's a teacher who's saying, I'm not going to come in on Monday morning and just have them watch a 20 minute video and do this kind of like crap assignment. Like I'm going to have my, I'm going to have it together and we're going to like utilize every second that we have in the classroom. And it's also the foresight of saying, look, we're going to plan this out ahead of time. And we're going to really look at the value of this and, and let's vet everything and everybody, you know, she'll constantly ask me like, why are we doing that? 
What's the value of that? How does that improve this? And I think that's really important. Like we have a really good working relationship and she doesn't just trust everything that I say. Like I need to prove to her that it's important, which forces me like I got to do my research. I I can't just like read some blog post about why this cool iPad app is so cool and expect teachers to use it. Like teachers need to own up and say, okay, I understand that you're excited about this. How is it going to impact learning for me? Because the teacher owns the content knowledge. They are the experts. Good technology integrators should be able to come to them and say, here are these cool tech tools that I have. Tell me about your learning targets. Tell me about your standards. Tell me about the expectations you have of your students. And let's see if I can figure out a way that technology is going to get us there faster or is going to get us to a deeper place. Because if you're just using technology to use technology, if you're just using Google Classroom because you don't have to go to the photocopier, you're not really doing much with the technology. And yes, you're integrating. And yes, it's great. And yes, you're teaching 21st century skills to some level. But but if you really want to get and hit those deep marks and save time and have more time for cool stuff, you've got to really sit down with two minds. Like I'm not a sex expert in science, but I am an expert in VR and design and, and apps and, and the way that these ecosystems can interact. And so I sit down with her and we have these deep conversations and that's, that's where the money happens. Good technology integration is, is rooted in conversations and relationships that the teacher has with the, the person who's jazzed up about that technology. That's where it is. That's the real currency right there. You're you're so spot on on that. Um, my daughter right now is in fifth grade and she brought home like an enrichment pro- project. And what, what grade is it that you're working with right now, David? My yeah, primarily sixth grade, but I, I you know, I pop into class all over the okay. school. So. so it's the end of the school year and they have an enrichment project and it's, I don't even understand how you do an enrichment project that's not connected to your program. So basically they've said to the kids, here's the SDGs. There's 17 of them. Choose one and then you're going to pitch a, pro- a, a, a problem that you want to solve. But they've scaffolded no skills. They've given them no direction. They've given them no resources and they've told them to do it at home. And they think that they're doing like project-based learning. And I diving in the deep end, right? Without with, with 10 and 11 year olds who don't even know where to start. And so my daughter comes home and she's like, she like, she has no idea where to start. She's not passionate about anything. She doesn't know how to be passionate. She hasn't been inspired. Like she doesn't even know what she doesn't know. She's 11, you know, in her little bubble of a world. She's into musically and well, no TikTok. Sorry. Like what does she know? And so, you know, she comes home to me and I'm not going to do her work for her. Right. Because otherwise, what's the point of this project? What is she actually getting out of it? And so it's, it's you're so spot on because this needs to be something that's not seen as this outside thing that you do in your classroom, but it's something that is part of your curriculum. It's integrated into, into the way that you're teaching your standards, AKA standards, whatever you want to call them. And it's part of the learning process and it's what they're learning. It's not this thing that you do above and beyond. And I think so many schools are their hearts in the right place, but they have no idea even where to begin. So what, what would you say to those schools, David, like who are, you know, they don't have a David and they're trying to get started. Where do you even start? The best starting place 
is to get everybody together and get on the same page. We have a really productive culture at our school that says that these things are important. And we also, we also are realistic in saying that, you know, the mandate is this and, and we're preparing kids to, um, to go to college. Like, you know, we're trying to change a system, but we're, we're putting them really back into a system that's not willing to change. And so we're just having those like really open conversations from the beginning, I think is number one. And then also having leadership that's like really accepting of, of experimentation and like micro failures and learning from those failures. So having, having a culture that's self-reflective and open to change and open to trying new things, even though they're not guaranteed to work. Teachers need to feel like they have the time and the empowerment to, to look into things um, because there's a lot of trends and there's a lot of stuff, the clickbait that gets shared that isn't really rooted in any research or any, anything important. And, you know, like there's a fine line between like, we are the research. And then there's a fine line of like, no, they researched this and it's garbage. Don't do it. And so there's a little bit of looking into that and, and saying like, what's going to fit for us. But I am very much a proponent of the idea that education is personal all the way down to the student and that the way you do things this year might not be the way you do them next year. And that takes a lot of work. You know, I'm fortunate enough to work at a place where I don't want to say money is unlimited, but it's, it's certainly not the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about doing a new thing or integrating a new thing. And, and where I was before it did. And sometimes that particular constraint is a huge advantage because when you don't have money to throw at every single problem, you really pick and choose where you're going to put your time and energy, um, and you definitely get the most bang for your buck. Sometimes the problem there is that it takes a lot of energy to do all of that research and figure all of that out. And, and, and so buying five apps and just discovering that one of them sucks, it can be a little bit easier than like, reading all of the different blogs and reviews and research and figuring out exactly which app you should buy just as a basic example. So to start with, have those conversations, be open to it and really provide the time. Like if you're a leader right now, um, I suggest you take the next PD day that you have and just have real open conversations with your teachers just about what are their goals and dreams and desires for their classroom for education yeah. and what do they want to move forward? Because um, you know, if they no one ever asks you that, no, nobody ever asks you that. I'm shaking my head. I'm angry because I've been in the classroom. I'm teaching all year, and not once all year has anyone in any of my professional development in my you know department asked that. And there's all this assumptions of like what we're going to be doing or what we should be doing, what you need to do too. Right. Well, and, you know, and, and I, I, again, I don't want to try and be political here, but in the United States, a big part of the educational system is tied to the government because it's a free public service. And so the federal government creates mandates that then the state has to figure out ways to live up to. And then the state adds to that other mandates. And at the end of the day, when the rubber hits the road, you know, education it, like just look at virginia there's parts of virginia that are so rural that like the skills of knowing how to fix a tractor 
could could literally get me a job tomorrow. Whereas the skills of knowing how an iPad works is like, that's not that important. Like I might not ever have to send an email in my life. And then there's parts of Virginia that are like right next to NASA Langley and understanding the importance of getting an engineering degree and pre-engineering is like phenomenal. So it's really, it comes down to the person and the place and the timing. And and in the United States, the federal government is just – it's so big and so widespread and it's trying to serve so many different communities and so many different people and places. Um, yeah, like I, I don't I, – I just think that it's too much. I, I think I, – I, I honestly think the Department of Education is just kind of a, a joke. Like it should really – just be about divvying out money and not about telling us how to educate our kids. And then like on the other side of that spectrum, if, if there's a teacher in a public school system or there's a parent in a public school system that can't look at their calendar and say the last time that they went to a school board meeting, you don't, you shouldn't be able to complain because that's where all the decisions are being made. And that's a process that's, very much a democratic process and like parents should run for school board and you should go to the meetings and use your three minutes of time to tell the school board what you think. Because, you know, I worked for a year in the central office of a school division that was public and I can't, I went to every single school board meeting and I, I get it. There's so many difficult decisions that have to get made about money, about time, about, everything and that's where those decisions get made and and i think so many people are delusional in the public system they just think that like it all just kind of happens and that the teachers making these choices and that the principals making these choices and it's it's a hierarchy that goes from teacher to principal to school board member to congressman to to mayor to governor to to senator all the way up to the president and it's like if you want to be a part of that process, de- democracy is not a spectator sport. Go to the school board meetings and just listen for crying out loud and participate because, you know, otherwise sit out. But David, I do think I'm doing a lot of um, studying right now around social learning theory that says um, that we learn by observing, right? And that's how teachers and parents have learned about the education system by the observations they made as students. And so because of that, they think that school needs to look a certain way. So when they go to a to a board meeting and they want to talk about what school should look like, they may not have the understanding they need to have about what schools look like at Martin Moran School in Chicago or your school. They only know this school that they went to. So they're going to push that agenda forward. And in some way, that could be holding us back. And and. Like, I can't wait until Edspace Live comes out because I, I people are going to get a look into other people's classrooms and we're going to get a look into your classroom at, here in California. And it's something we haven't done before. That's why I'm studying social learning theory, because we learn from observing, but yet we put teachers in, in classrooms and we shut the door. And then we're like, I don't understand why you're not changing because they don't see anything else. They go talk about it at a conference, but they don't see it in action. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And I and I think that the onus is on everyone. Um, I saw someone comment on Facebook the other day that she said, my child just can't spell and they don't do spelling tests anymore. 
And, <laughs> and it was like this mind blowing thing. And like everyone in the comments was like back in my day and in my day and my day. And I'm thinking, well, God, thank God we don't do things the way you guys did them either. Because, you know, in every other industry, it's completely expected that things develop and change. Like you don't go to your doctor and, and they don't right. do the things they did in the fifties anymore. And you don't take your car to a mechanic and they don't fix it the way they fixed it in the fifties anymore. Like, thank God. Right. So I, yeah, but, I that's the biggest, but that's the biggest issue in education. You know, everyone's been educated in some way, right? Everyone has experiences that they remember as students. So they think that they understand education because they've gone through the process. I was speaking to uh, Rebecca Hare the other day, and Rebecca does a lot of work with learning spaces. And she was telling me about, uh, you know, how everybody makes these assumptions of the way that they want to be in a space, including students. Like students will say, you know, when we include the kids and they'll say like, oh, well, we need to have, no, not always, but she's worked with stu students that have been like, no, we need to have tables and we need to have this and we need to have that. And, and she says, because they have no frame of reference of how it could either be in any other way. And she spoke about the... Uh, she told me a story about the guy who invented the van and how at first nobody wanted the van. And, and he was like, this is going to revolutionize the way that people commute because this is necessary. And, and they were like, no, the van is horrible. It'll never sell. And, and what ended up happening, obviously, as you know, is the van is very well sold. People buy it because it's maybe it's not so beautiful, but it's it's useful. And they like they love it, even though they hate it, but they love it because they need it. And so I think that's that says a lot about our education system, if you were to think about it, because we have these ideas that maybe parents don't necessarily understand, but they don't know that they don't know that they don't like it because they've never experienced it. And it's just because it's been done a certain way doesn't mean it always has to be done that way. I don't know. I feel like I'm fighting this all day long in my school as like this, this like warrior, because I'm like, no, we don't have to have eight periods or seven periods a day. That doesn't, that's because we've always done it. Why do we need to do it this way? Let's try a different way. So I don't know. This is just the thoughts that I've been thinking a lot of. Well, no, yeah. Daniel, what you're saying, it goes, it goes even deeper. Like why are we teaching subjects in isolation and why yes. are we, why are we preparing educators to teach a particular subject? Um, we talk about this at the future design school. We want kids to be, we want them to be critical thinkers and communicators and collaborators and communicators and, and, you know, the four C's it's so buzzy, but like how, yes. and so they say, well, let's, let's, let's teach those things through the lens of computational thinking and entrepreneurship and design thinking. And, and that's to me, like, that's really where things are going. Um, and that's the access to information is no longer through the person in the front of the room. It's more about teaching kids how to access the information that they want and that they need. And so teaching them how to have conversations with other human beings and teaching them that, you know, helping people can teach you so much and that, and that, you know, teaching them the process of designing and solving a problem uh, in and of itself is a massive, massive lesson. And you have to learn so, so much to be able to legitimately solve a problem and not just write something down on the paper. And, and it takes forward thinking schools to be able to pull that off. And, and it's going to take, you know, I hate to say an act of Congress because I don't even think that's a thing anymore, but it, it's going to take like, you know, a meteor to get 
the, the uh, an entire country's education system, a country that's as big as the United States, to just say like, no more periods, no more subjects in isolation. You know, the standards are four things, and it's these. You know, these soft twelve soft skills, and then you know your community, you you community decides how it's done. That's so, you know it's what they're doing in New Zealand, and and yeah, yeah, it's just. You I know, know that it's the simplified, take off all the fat. It's become this big monster thing that doesn't need to be anymore. Like it's just so in depth and so complex when there's hardly any time to get through what they, the expectation of what, like it's, it's made by a bunch of people sitting in an office that haven't worked with kids, like probably ever who don't understand like the complexity of dealing with human beings. Cause that's what we do all day. I mean, I teach humans who are yes. different all day long, who have other things. Like I teach at a school that's seven miles from MSD where they are suffering. Wait, I have wait, a lot. Don't, don't say MSD. You have to explain what that means. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, where they had the, the uh, shooting last year in Parkland. I have kids in my class that I teach that suffer from post-traumatic stress because they were in the building when the shooter came in and were hiding in bathroom stalls uh, with their feet on the the toilets for two hours, terrified like that they were going to die. And so, so I mean, when I have you know my kids come in and, and I teach in an, an, an a really nice place. Don't get me wrong; I think that my school is wonderful and the teachers are amazing. But these kids, you know, they 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 I work in a private school. They've left the public system because they just it it they, they they're they're so much trauma when they go to school every day, and they're dealing with so many other things. And so, like the idea of like teaching some days with my kids, like we will, we, you know, I would sit around and we would just talk about other things. They would tell me about stories about their summer, or you know, because they're humans, and I'm not going to get caught up on curriculum because these are human beings in my room. That that's not important right now, and I think. We we need to remember that like we get so hung up on stuff that we have to do and we forget that these are people little people that are amazing that just need to be listened to and loved i agree i yeah. agree but i i think it's i mean spain is a country that's just a little bit bigger than ohio and you know i work in a private school as well and we're able to do whatever it is that we want uh, and so we serve the people that come through our doors exclusively and we're not prepared to serve someone who doesn't come to our school. And so when I look at the system, it's just so massive and it's so big. I, I really, I really think the States and the communities within each state need to just take the reins and the parents need to take the reins and just say like, that we've had enough. I'm going to be frank with you. I don't have any sense of community where I live, even in my community and I live in a gated community like bleh. like I don't even have a sense of community so how then do you foster a sense of community I don't want to be pessimistic but these are the realities that we deal with especially when you're working in an area that is so densely populated right and so it, these are all things that we need to think about right as educators I think these are the questions that we need to start really asking so that we can start coming up with you know local solutions because I totally agree with you community schools are really important and probably an answer for so many schools. And, you know, then again, like, how do you foster a sense of community? So, yeah, I don't have the answers. I don't know. Maybe you guys have better ideas. I, I think I do. I think you help people. You help people. Who, who you helps? Never, 
the students, the students need to help people and, and human centered design is a fantastic way to do that. When you talk about wanting to reduce food waste at the fifth grade lunch at ASM, you're talking about a particular subset of people. I can take you to three classrooms and you can talk to all of the kids that you're trying to help and you can understand them and, and you can understand their needs. Um, and so, you know, if the kids are trying to solve real world problems, they're trying to solve those problems for someone or for something. And that creates that empathy that's so important, that social emotional learning that's so, so important with the kids. And it, and it, and it all comes back to those, those soft skills of communicating and collaborating and, and, you know, and it's like, you could build an entire curriculum down in Florida around the Everglades and, and saving wildlife and creatures there. And you could teach science and math and engineering and English and social studies. And it's like just focusing on, on trying to save a particular species. And you would have to work with existing scientists and existing engineers. And you'd have to understand how the government works and how laws get passed and how policy changes. And you'd have to understand you know, why that road got built, where it got built, and why is this community gated? And it's just, you know, and when we were working in Virginia, I was working at a school district that was trying to employ what's called an academy school. And we were doing a pocket academy. And in an academy school, the kids uh, focus on one main project and they go in a cohort of groups from class to class to class. So the kids that you're in math class are the same kids you're in with in social studies and science and in, in your, your ELA classes. And what happens is that because you stay together in these courses, you focus on one centralized project that, that, is, that you're touching with, uh, usually in like your technology courses. So um, for an example, at the school we had, we had an engineering academy. And so the kids were working on engineering projects, building robots, building solar powered vehicles. And so when they went to math, the math focused on solving that particular problem. When they went to English, the, the English and the writing and the research all focused on the complexities of this problem. And so when you build out these problems that help solve people, you get kids excited, you get kids interested. And, and then you, you structure the curriculum in such a way that, that allows them to focus their energy in on creating this capstone creating this huge change, something that they can look at and take pictures of and be proud of. And, and it's not just a test. And I mean, we hear people say this stuff all the time, but it just, it's just a matter of doing it. It's, it's so, you're so right. And I think I'm really hoping, like, I'm going to send this podcast to my principal and to my head of school when this is done, because I think that people have these really good intentions. And I know at my school, they are trying to move in that direction. And I think it's just a matter of people being on the same page, giving time to your faculty to be able to work on these projects together, having coaches. Like when you, you know, I was thinking to myself, like how lucky are these teachers and, and how lucky are you that you work with such great teachers that you have the opportunity and the time to go and sit down and plan these projects. Because I think without the right people on hand, without the right personnel and without the coaching element, like I, I don't think that it would be possible. I think I'm a pretty skilled teacher and I think that I have the right intentions. And I think that if I had somebody that I was able to work with all year 
and be able to have the flexibility to work with other teachers as well. I could have been so much more successful in my role this year as a teacher. And I feel like if, you know, I, unfortunately I'm not staying at the school next year, but if I was, I think that that would have been what I would have pushed for to be able to do more cross curricular work to be able to work with other teachers to push what I was doing because I felt so isolated. And I think that's what happens with so many teachers in schools. They feel so isolated because they don't have the opportunity to work with people like you or people who are thinking outside of the box about or their even teaching. Or a teacher next door. Absolutely. They don't even know what they're doing. No, they don't. I, you, they you absolutely don't. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. I didn't know what was going on down the hall. I mean, and I talk to people and I'm a, pre, I'm a connected educator. I'm more connected into Spain and Germany this year than I felt with some of the people in my own school. And so we have to do a better job at that. And I think it really comes down to the leadership. I, I That's my opinion. I, I, I think you need to set time aside and make that a priority at your school. And if you don't, then it's something that's not going to happen. People are overwhelmed. Their lives happen. You know, you, you get isolated in your class and your class becomes this thing that you just do. But David has something unique and he has this uh, leader, his head of school is connected with the head of school in Barcelona and they're connected with the head of school in Valencia. And and they're like, to me, they, they have this network and David, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but the, like I sat down to dinner with them and they were all there talking about their schools and what they're doing and trying to be the best leaders. And I think that that has a huge thing to do with a lot of this. If you are not a connected leader and you don't have people to talk to, can you really move your school forward? David, am I right on that? Uh, well, yeah, absolutely. And and I think something else that, that always bothered me in the United States is that the leaders that we put in our school were often just the, the teachers, the, the best teachers. It was like there really was no vertical growth model for a teacher. The, the vertical growth model for a teacher is you get your master's in leadership and then you become a principal. And it's like, that not not great teachers don't always make the best principles and and also like why wouldn't we want to keep great teachers in the classroom like let's keep them teaching and so some of some of that system there is you know like let's let's pull the leadership for education maybe from other places um and yes being well connected is is important and being connected to your community and your parents and it's not just about going to the baseball games, but that's like really super important too. And, you know, principals in the public education system, man, they are just overworked to the max. Like I can't even believe when I would look at just the little mundane tasks that they have to do. And I know I watched the school district go through budget cuts and lose personnel. And I mean, it's just, it's just gnarly how much stuff they have to, they're in charge of and how much responsibility they have in the school. And it's, it is. It's important. It's an important position to be connected and to be forward thinking, to be making these good choices and all of it. Everything you're talking about, Tanya, and everything you're talking about, Holly, it's not just a job. That's the thing. When you become a doctor, when you become a policeman, when you become a firefighter, when you become a teacher, you are serving a higher calling. And if you had to ask me right now, if I had like one wish for education, if I could change one thing, it would be to change the percept, the public perception of teachers and of education. You know, you 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 don't come into interacting with a policeman or a firefighter or a doctor unless it's you need them, right? Like I'm sick, I go to the doctor. 
my house is on fire, my cat's in a tree, or, you know, I call the ambulance, the firefighter comes up. Or I feel like I'm in danger, I call the police. But a teacher is someone you interact with whether you like it or not. And that relationship has become muddied in the U.S. because it's mandated and it's messy. And I just wish that teachers had a different perception. I wish that they were, were viewed more like policemen and firefighters and doctors and this public servant who has chosen essentially to dedicate more than just their time to helping these kids and to, and to helping their community. Because my God, like a well-educated community is going to be thriving and it's going to be, you know, way better off. And so that would be my one wish is to just, to just change the perception and not every teacher deserves your utmost respect. And, and, you know, and that's a bummer to say, but that's just the way it is. And so holding the teachers accountable, but also like giving them a lot of credit. I mean, we don't just want vacation. I would rather work year round and have, you know, a better salary and, and feel like I was more respected in my community and not have to pay so, so many student loan debt. And oh, yeah. Don't, don't <laughs> uh, so, so- David, you're kind of were able to sort of wrap that up with your what wish, which is something we um, are going to start asking now. So thank you for that idea. Um, we're super honored to have you on here. We've taken a, a bit of your time, so we're going to wrap this up. Where could people find you, follow you, get a hold of you, uh, have you come to their school even? Gosh, I mean, if you're doing this <laughs> kind of stuff, people could certainly learn from you. So 2019 for me uh, is all about reading books. And for me, that meant getting off of social media. So if you want to reach out to me, the best place to find me is on Twitter, although I don't hop on there very often. Uh, you can find me at dhotler, H-O-T-L-E-R. Really, the best way to reach me is my email. Just send me an email. It's at d, uh, dhotler, my first initial last name, at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from anybody um, and I'm totally open to chat or talk. Um, but yeah, that's where you can find me. Or if they want to come to the American school of Madrid and see the wonderful stuff that's happening. You're always welcome. Anyone's always welcome to come to the American school of Madrid and hang out for a day. I'll put you in VR. I'll take you to some classes. If you're ever in Madrid, you should definitely hit me up. Uh, we would love, love, love to have you. We'd have so oh, many visiting teachers. Come. I, I'm so taking you up on that at some point. Do there's it. no question. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure to be with you, ladies. Well, thanks. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to the Infused Classroom Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or anywhere you get podcasts. Keep up with the conversation by using the hashtag Infused Classroom on Twitter and Instagram. And make sure to check out InfusedClassroom.com. See you next time.